Chronicles of a Psychonaut is about much more than psychedelics and plant medicine. It's really a platform for storytelling. I realized that so many of my friends have such incredible stories and wisdom that they've collected from over the years, and that many of these stories have not been told on the larger public stage. I wanted to create this podcast so that we could hear the wisdom of our community and our friends. Last February, I got to sit down with my friend Danelle Naraki and hear her story about how she healed herself of HPV and cervical dysplasia without the help of the Western medical industry. In fact, they told her her only options were invasive surgical type procedures and she decided not to accept that and seek her own path of education and healing and she successfully healed herself of that condition. Now she runs a company called Cervical Wellness and she helps educate women about their reproductive system and reproductive health and helps guide other people through this healing journey. We also talk about plant medicine and ayahuasca. We talked about American history and many things. It was really a a very good conversation. So without further ado, welcome Danelle Naraki. Good to have you on the show, Danelle. Yeah, great to be here, Finch. I'm yeah. excited to talk with you. So you are a fellow psychonaut, and I'm, I've been excited to talk about your journey with plant medicine, mm. with magic mushrooms, or, or whatever else. Mm-hmm. And But since this is one of the first episodes, I want to kind of introduce the perspective of what is plant medicine mm. compared to um, maybe how mainstream Western culture thinks about psychedelics as drugs mm. or like even narcotics. And um, that I know for myself growing up, I, I wasn't aware of the healing power of mushrooms. I was kind of vaguely aware that it helps you um, with like new perspectives and can help you find insight and things like that. But I, I wasn't really clear of really like how they had been used by traditional cultures and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, um, I guess for you, did you, at what point did you learn about that perspective? Mm. Um, or maybe we can even just talk about the perspective, what that perspective is. Um, so maybe tell, tell us a little bit about how you first learned about, um, say magic mushrooms beyond just the context of like drug culture? Mm. Well, that's a, that's an interesting question because it took several years of me uh, communing with the plant medicines before I actually learned about the sacredness of it. Mm -hmm. So um, I'll just give a little bit of history of my use, I guess I'll start there. So um, I didn't even know about say psychedelic mushrooms until I was about 18 or 19 
And before that, I knew about cannabis, um, Mm -hmm. but I didn't smoke cannabis in high school. It was actually quite the (laughs) goody-goody. You know, my parents... Did the D.A.R.E. program work on you? No, it was just more... It wasn't around me. Uh Um, I think my friends did smoke pot, but they didn't smoke it around me. Um, My high school boyfriend actually, like, forbade me from (laughs) smoking, which I'm like, what the heck was I thinking? Um, But it wasn't until I got to college, I went to UC Davis, and left that high school relationship did the plant medicines really start to come back into my field and so started with cannabis and um i remember the first time i got actually high on cannabis i had a full-on visionary experience where i was like in a different world i was experiencing things that i had never experienced before in my life and i was like oh this is awesome i didn't know if you smoke plants this could happen um what did you see Well, um, I was actually standing in like a median of like a street and there was like, no, I'm sorry. I was standing in like this plant area next to a sidewalk next to a street. And I remember when the full effects came on the, I got transported into like standing on the side of this hill of a ravine and like the sidewalk was this ravine and there was like these like rush of horses and like it was like a calvary Mm. of people on calvary (laughs) like on horses stampeding through this ravine and i was like having to hold on to these bushes because i was feeling the power of this calvary running through this ravine and then when i like finally came to i realized i was just like staring at the sidewalk um so that's that's like the one and only time I've like been like transported to another time and space on cannabis. Yeah. Um, Did you smoke it or eat it? Smoked it uh-huh. out of a um, a steamroller. Do you I know what a steamroller I is? Oh, what is that? <laughs> it's like this long. It's like a pipe, long pipe. But oh, um, you I do put, know what those you put are. The, yeah. You kind of go like this and put your hand on the end and light the bowl and unleash it. Um, so, you know, once I experienced the wonders of cannabis, I started smoking all the time and that really was the gateway drug, you can say. (laughs) D.A.R.E. program (laughs) with that language is funny because it really was the opening for me to be like, wow, plants are incredible. Mm -hmm. And if they can send me to these places and help me have these insights and visions, then you know, why wouldn't I want them to be in my life? And so then, you know, moving forward, I, um, you know, I was quite the party girl in college, you know, drinking a lot, going to frat parties and everything. And I had some pretty traumatizing experiences in the first year, year and a half of my college experience. And when um you know i came out of these experiences and not knowing how to really move forward that's when the mushrooms came into my life so my friend sterling uh, she's kind of the my guide for many of my drug experiences um said to like do you want to take mushrooms with me and i'm like mushrooms what do you mean she's like you know psychedelic mushrooms i was like oh I thought people go like crazy on those things. Um, 
but I said yes and I had just turned 19 and I remember we were actually driving to Armstrong Woods here in Sonoma County in, in Guerneville and I was driving and she had put them in a sandwich and I have no idea how many she put in there like mm. I don't know the dose uh-huh. but she's like here Danelle eat this and so I'm eating the sandwich. And you knew there were mushrooms in that yes, sandwich. Okay. I knew there were mushrooms. But mush- just not how much. But yeah. not how much. But I like when I reflect, I remember seeing some really big mushrooms she was putting in there. <laughs> um, and so driving, eating the sandwich and we get to Armstrong Woods and, you know, that's when they start to really fully take effect. And... Um, I would like to say that it was anywhere from three and a half to four grams, mm-hmm. um, which for a 19 year old first timer girl, first timer, yeah, um, that's a lot. Yeah. I, my life like is characterized from before that experience and after that experience, mm-hmm. um, before mushrooms and after mushrooms. And, um, literally all the veils that I had been put on myself to hide my true magic just got like ripped away and I communed with what I call the more than human world in a way that I hadn't done so since I was a small child so when I was a a very small child I called myself Doolittle like Dr. Doolittle because I could talk to animals Mm -hmm. and I could talk to trees and like fairies were real and um like it just it wasn't make believe it was real life for me but as you know growing up and going to middle school and high school you know just that couldn't that wasn't cool mm-hmm. so this mushroom journey really um like cracked open uh myself and who i who i am and i remember this baby redwood tree like asked me to dance with it and i was like dancing with this baby redwood tree and it was shimmering and like all these like ancient redwood trees around me were just watching and like giving me blessing to like connect to them in in a very special way and so after that moment i was like oh my god like these are amazing psychedelics are amazing and um I then started using them regularly, but I didn't know about the, um, like their indigenous roots or the ceremonial sacrament aspect of it until, um, probably like four or five years later when, you know, I was out of college. I had traveled the world. I, um, had gone through more life experience and you know the mushroom in particular has always been an ally for me and um, I started wondering like why do I feel so connected to to the mushrooms like what is it about mushrooms and I started doing research about you know how have these been used in the past like if I love them so much why I wonder if like other people loved them mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's when I started learning about like the mushroom cults in, in Mexico and learning about Amanita muscaria and um, like the Celtic origins and the Siberian origins of, of using mushroom as a sacrament and around this time in my life I started to go deep into um, 
exploring spirituality and consciousness and, you know, the, um, who we are as humans in this world and in the cosmos. And, um, I kind of, I, I moved away from the party girl and using, you know, substances just to escape to then using them as a way to explore my inner world. And so, you know, I wish I had known about how sacred they were when I first started using them, although subconsciously I felt that. I felt, you know, the, the, the power of these, these plants. <clears throat> but it took me, you know, sitting down and asking the question, I wonder, to actually explore this. And mm-hmm. And then I deepened this when I went back to graduate school and I wrote my master's thesis on the, the healing potentials of psilocybin mushrooms. And um, because I was writing a master's thesis, I had to put it in a cultural context. So I you know, explored um, the histor- history even more deeply. And so, yeah, I'd say you know, the, the sacredness of it is... Um, is a relatively new thing for me, mm-hmm. and, but I'm, I'm grateful for that knowing. Mm-hmm. So, um, and would you say, like, how would you say that the mushrooms have brought healing to you? And, and, and mm. would you say that that helped you um, heal from those traumatic experiences that mm. you had in college? Mm. Uh, um, mm-hmm. Oh, <laughs> that's a that's a big question. So one thing that I've noticed about my mushroom journeys is like the first few of them were really fun, mm-hmm. like laughing, giggling, you know, rolling on the ground. But as I've gotten older and I have, you know, communed with the mushrooms more often, it's like, okay, well, we're done showing you our, like our light side. Like, we're going to, like, have you face the darkness now. Mm. And so what mushrooms have done for me is shine a light on my inner world where there is darkness. And I need to look at it and I need to process it. And so, you know, with these experiences in college, as well as just experiences in my you know early and mid-20s, um, my MO was to run away. Like, Mm -hmm. I just didn't like, oh, that happened. Okay, well, I'm just going to not face that direction and just move forward. Mm -hmm. But what that led to was my body not integrating those experiences. And so I have a I have a running theory. What what do you mean by that? Just uh, for anyone who might not know. Yeah. Uh, Sorry, my headphones, I feel like are going to come off. Um, So I have a theory that just came to me in a vision that when you know, as we in these human forms are moving through time and space, that when we have an experience, um, whether that's like painful, traumatic, or adverse, uh, if we do not allow that experience to um, essentially like flow through our body, a piece of our life force energy, a piece of our essence gets essentially stuck in that moment. Mm -hmm. So I like to talk about the time-space continuum as like a a loaf. Like if you think of it as like a physical loaf, Mm -hmm. like time and space. And so as we're moving through the space-time loaf (laughs) and a piece of us is stuck in the past, we become essentially tethered 
energetically tethered to that moment in time. So even though our physical body is moving forward in the space-time loaf, that piece of us is still way back here. Mm -hmm. And as we continue and move on through time, that tether becomes strained and taut. And um, the body is unable to function at its highest uh, possibility because a piece of the life force energy that animates us is stuck in the past. So one way to unhook yourself from the past is by consciously looking at it, is by being like, okay, I'm going to actively remember that moment and allow my body to go through the process it needs to go through to integrate that and that can be through crying or screaming or shaking or whatever sort of experience your body needs to go through to bring like unhook yourself from that moment in time and essentially untether yourself to bring that piece of you back mm-hmm. so what mushrooms have done for me is um Uh, expose where those tethers have been or where those tethers are and um, they won't untether or unhook me for me they just essentially point me in this direction like oh like see remember this like yeah this is something you need to actually process this is something you need to heal and you're pretending like it didn't happen Mm mm-hmm so, you know, I, I also um, love the mushrooms for just ex- being able to experience, you know, maybe heightened sense of color and, and fractal patterns or like just um, like galactic images that can pulsate. But in terms of healing myself and in terms of how they have helped me heal is they show me where... I am not wanting to look. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's a lot of um, pretty visuals and colors, and mm-hmm. it's fun to kind of be out in the woods and explore. Yes. But I'm I'm also most interested in mushrooms and plant medicines for that that potential to heal and and understand the self. Right. Because it can be difficult to access those tethers, uh, um, like you say. Um, you know, it shows you where they are. Like there, there's, I've experienced so many parts of myself that I forgot about. Right. Like, um, during a mushroom experience or ayahuasca ceremony or something like that, Mm -hmm. um, these memories will come up that I totally forgot about or blocked out or something like that. Um, and there's still energy there, life force energy tied up. Yes. Mm -hmm. Yes. And that's, you know, in, in the research that I've done of, how peoples in the past have used these plant medicines, um, that this is why they were used is to um, bring about healing to the people. It wasn't just, you know, fun, willy-nilly, I want to get high. It's like, oh, our our community needs some healing. And so um, in particular with the mushrooms is um, the community would do them together is they would sit in a circle around the fire and commune with the mushrooms and then they would integrate together so after they've had the experience they would sit around the same fire and talk about what they experienced and sometimes members of the community would experience things on behalf of another and so sharing these stories 
was for the collective and I I feel that when I am with the mushrooms and I I am not as experienced with ayahuasca but I also felt that with ayahuasca as well it's like oh like we're doing some deep collective healing like I'm mm. tuning into my father or you know my ancestral lineage and I'm processing this energy on behalf of them as well mm-hmm. so yeah, I think that's an important thing to mention that uh, indigenous cultures, they, they didn't use them recreationally. And mm. in fact, it was considered disrespectful to do so. Right, you know? right. Um, taking a sacrament is like going to sit at the feet of a, of a great teacher, you mm. know, with humility, the purpose to, to learn. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, let's talk about intention, too, mm. because I feel like that's a very important part for guiding the experience, you know, to... Mm to take a moment um, to really get in touch with why we might be taking the sacrament at that particular time. Mm-hmm. Uh, what do we want to get out of it? Um, and, you know, a lot of times I don't necessarily have a goal in mind, but I my intention is to receive healing or to receive insight. And I'll just say, say that, you know, mm-hmm. like basically go and sit at the feet of the teacher and say I'm open to hearing what you have to show me right now. Um, and even though it's so wide, wide open like that, it's still, I feel is important to have some kind of, uh, intentional focal point to guide the experience. It's kind of like bringing an offering to the teacher or or showing respect in a way. Mm -hmm. And, um, but even times where I have had a specific intention of like, oh, you know, I just went through a breakup and, um, you know, th- there was a pattern in this relationship that has appeared in many others or something like that. You know, how I want to discover, like, what is my role in recreating this relationship pattern, something mm-hmm. like that. And it will totally play out in the journey, like, in ways that, you know, I don't, didn't necessarily expect. Yes, I, I, I love that you want to speak about intention because... Um, I feel like that's where the true medicine lies is when you have a, when you give the medicine a direction. So, you know, I've talked to people about intention and they're like, why do I need to set an intention? And, you know, my understanding is like, if you just take the the plants or, you know, take the sacrament and you don't give them any direction, they're just going to be like, okay, well, I'm going to show you something that's way over here and you might not be able to like use that in your life right now it might not be the right time or I I like to think about like the intelligence of the plant just choosing for you what it wants to show you whereas if you have an intention and you kind of put a boundary around like what you're wishing to receive then the medicine can work within that boundary instead of just kind of like you know shooting wherever Mm -hmm. um I I think it might be Terrence McKenna who said this. I don't quite remember who, but they said that when you take a plant medicine, you're actually accessing all of the experiences of anyone who has ever, you know, taken that plant medicine. Mm -hmm. And so that's a lot of information out there that you can tap into. And so setting an intention or having an intention puts a boundary on that. And for me in my healing process and um, when I invite others to use the plant medicines, 
I this is the reason why I tell them to set an intention is you know you want to set a boundary so you can actually receive what you want to receive mm-hmm. um, you know the I t- um, when I sat in a ceremony an ayahuasca ceremony with my partner he didn't have an intention and he didn't really experience much like it wasn't a visionary experience it wasn't a mystical experience whereas my intention was like really crystal clear and i got shot to the moon like Mm. i was like whoa okay thank you ayahuasca and he was a little put off that he didn't really have you know the experience that he was hoping and i was like well you didn't set an intention you didn't have a reason why you wanted to take it you're just like oh i'm just gonna sit in ceremony and so ayahuasca didn't know what to do with that Mm -hmm. So that's, those are my thoughts on intention. Yeah. Um, are there some specific stories you could share about uh, psychedelic experiences? Uh, maybe really standout ones that um, were life-shifting points, like that first one that you mentioned, or, mm. or any others that kind of, when you look back at your whole life, you can see, oh, that was, my whole life shifted from that journey. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Right. Well, I'll speak to this ayahuasca experience I, I just mentioned, um, which took me over two years to integrate from. So uh, before sitting in the ceremony, it was my first time having um, taking ayahuasca. Uh, ayahuasca had been coming to me over the course of like three years prior where, um, you know, people would mention it to me, certain healer friends, when I would talk to them about like the crises I was experiencing, be like, oh, well, have you taken ayahuasca? And I was always too afraid. And at this time of my life, um, I was 25. Um, I felt like um, something was holding me back from actually living my true potential. I explained it like, it felt like I would come up against this invisible membrane and I couldn't like push through it. Mm-hmm. And every teacher of mine, I would explain this to them and they would give me tools and it just never worked. And so um, finally for like when, when ayahuasca came up about like the 12th time, I was like, okay, Okay, I think I think I'm ready. <laughs> How was it appearing to you? Like when you say it came to you, right? So people would tell me about it. I would see, you know, things on the internet about it. I would hear people talking about it. People would tell me, "Oh, I just sat in an ayahuasca ceremony." And what I know about um, spirit medicine, whether it's plant spirit medicine or crystals or whatnot, like when they want to be to work with you, they'll like keep reminding you about they'll them. show up yes. from like a myriad of directions in a <laughs> right. short span of time that's like very unusual right right so like you know see books at the library i don't know it was just like random places be like ayahuasca ayahuasca <laughs> so um and actually i was working with a woman at the time who uh facilitated ceremonies and so that was one of the last straws. I was like, okay, I'm like working with a woman who gives ceremonies. So, okay, I'm just going to say yes. And so my intention for the ceremony was, um, you know, I asked Ayahuasca, please show me what is holding me back. What is this membrane that I am unable to push through? 
and um, you know, drank the medicine and I was shocked at how palatable it was. Like, oh, this isn't that bad. <laughs> and um, I remember feeling the medicine starting to kind of course through my DNA and like having visions of it intertwining with, with my genetic coding. And I was like, okay, ayahuasca, I'm ready. And like ayahuasca like showed me her, like this beautiful mandala face. And she's like, no, no, we're going to get to know each other first. Mm-hmm. And then I will, you know, answer your question or your intention. And so, um, at this time, I also took another little dose because I was impatient. <laughs> and, um, you know, on this journey, I was shown so many different things about the universe and this life um, leading up to the big moment, which I'll get to. But, you know, one a few of the things that really just transformed my perspective was... Um, I was laying outside and I was like watching the stars kind of like swirl into being and um, there was a mosquito that was buzzing by my ear and just out of habit I slapped and killed this mosquito Hmm. and me causing that death all of a sudden the um, web of life that interconnects us all like sprouted into being I could see like the three-dimensional flower of life pattern that that like permeated out to the universe. Uh, I saw how me causing that death made that web of life kind of like go haywire. Like it, it like made this like ripple of um, like static kind of go like out into the universe. I was like, whoa. So like when we intentionally kill something for the with no purpose and with malice, like we... Um, create dissension or or i can't think of the word just distortion distortion in this web of life and i was just like laying there like watching my action like permeate through the entire universe i was like oh my god Mm -hmm. like that's what happens when we do harm Mm. and so you know um I felt like I really needed to go inside at this time because the medicine was really starting to take over my body and I went and and laid down and I remember I think I like wrapped myself in like a cocoon of blankets and just like was like in this incubator and um, at this time I I mean this is like a very chronological story but it wasn't (laughs) linear at all and I remember tuning into my father and feeling the deep pain of my father and, and, and his family and just sort of like sobbing and crying for my father and realizing like his pain and how he's never really lived a life that he wanted. And, and as I was like experiencing this like pain for my father, I became consciously aware of not being in my body and that I was like in the void and I remember like I also was like looking down like my body was down there and I was up in some higher plane I was like oh my god this is what it's gonna be like to die Mm. like I am out of my body right now and it's not scary it actually feels really good (laughs) like I am like a part of the whole and I'm 
I'm not in pain and I feel really loved at the moment. And so that was really profound to have the experience. I mean, this is an assumption of what it will be like to die. Mm -hmm. And so my fear of death became greatly reduced, you know, after this journey. And so, you know, know, there are other experiences and, and then, you know, hearing people purge around me and, (laughs) like other people were having their own journeys um but the the ceremony facilitator like rang a bell was like okay we're all gonna come together that you know you should all be kind of completing your journey and I was like oh my god I am so deep in it right now like what do you mean I have to come sit in the circle and so I remember I was like crawling into the circle and this like energy just started to well up inside my body and I was like oh my God, like what is happening? I'm starting to freak out because everybody seems to be coherent and I am still in it. And I remember my body just started to get so hot and I'm just like ripping off my clothes and I started to like freak out. And I feel this like hard bubble like come from within, like from my reproductive system, you know, belly area, and it starts to like come up out of my body. I'm like, I'm going to purge. Oh my gosh, I'm going to purge. And so I remember like I turn around to get the bowl and this bubble came out of my throat and out of my body. And what came out of me was this whale, was this like screaming wail of a sound that I have never made before. And as I was wailing, I was downloaded with all of this remembrance of all the women in my ancestry who had never been able to cry or who were never able to grieve or process their traumas or um it was literally like the cry of 20,000 grandmothers who were were never able to do their own healing work. And like, <laughs> there was like four or five parts of me experiencing this and ayahuasca was like, this is your answer. That this membrane that you have not been able to push through, it is your ancestral trauma. Hmm. And you are here to remember this and you are here to process this. And I, I mean, in terms of time, I, I don't know how long this went on, um, but I was just like sobbing and crying and um, just re- like remembering like, you know, I have European ancestry and like remembering the burning times and remembering all my grandmothers who practiced herbal medicine, herbal medicine and mushroom, you know, medicine and were midwives who like watched their sisters and mothers and aunts like be burned at the stake. I was remembering like even farther back into like the Celtic lineage when the Romans came and raped and pillaged all of, you know, the Celts and even further back, you know, into the pagan lineage when then like the the Iron Age of the the Celtic peoples um, basically decimated, you know, the the earth-based Um, religions and so like this entire soup of trauma just like came pouring out of my body and um, I ended up you know purging actual purging a couple times 
um, from both ends. And I, I was like in such a, um, energetic purging state that I actually had to like remove myself from the group and like sleep it off somewhere else because Mm -hmm. it was just so intense. Yeah. And you know, the next morning I was like, what just happened? (laughs) And for a good two years, it, it, I was not fully in my body. Like I wasn't able to relate to my family. I wasn't able to relate to my friends. My partnership was strained because I was like, I don't know how to integrate this information. Um, But with time I did and of patience and a lot of journaling and art. Um, But that experience um, was a catalyst to me doing this work in women's health, women's reproductive health, which I, I do now. And, um, you know, in all honesty, that's actually the only ayahuasca ceremony I sat in mm-hmm. because sure. it was just so um, life altering. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, that would take two two years to exp- uh, integrate. I think something. I mean, I last ceremony I did was about three years ago, mm-hmm. and I it it can take a while for sure. Mm-hmm. Um. So, gosh. <laughs> there's there's so much so much value to an experience like that even though it's so intense like i i remember before i ever drank ayahuasca i heard stories about it and i was nervous and i was scared because i heard you know people would one person told me that they had this experience where they were in this kind of void space just they were there and everything else was black mm-hmm. and this giant huge black anaconda came out of the dark and swallowed them and they died. <laughs> oh my gosh. And then, but, but then they were like reborn and it was the most terrifying experience of their life that they would never want to do again, but they were so happy it happened. It was the best thing that ever happened to them. And I was just like, I don't want that to happen to me. Like they're like, no, it was amazing. I was like, it's so intense. Like, I mean, how, you know, how do you just go and sign up for that? Right. Right. Um, and then hearing an experience like yours to to finally break through that uh, that membrane and get beyond that and get to live the rest of your life beyond that kind of threshold that was imposed upon you. Right. right. But then somehow you have to find the courage to to enter, you know, and, and ayahuasca is not always intense. It can be. It can also be super gentle. Um I just want to say that for people too. Um, but it does take courage, I think, to mm-hmm. to take psychedelics, um, especially intentionally for the purposes of healing. It takes courage to shift from that point of your life of running away from the uncomfortable feelings, running away from situations or conflict that you don't know how to deal with, and just kind of like finding that centeredness of being and, and even if you're scared to just kind of like begin to move forward into it and, and, you know, face that. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whether you choose to use psychedelics for that purpose or some, some other manner, but, you know, to, to confront one's own issues and start, start on the healing path, it takes a tremendous amount of courage and it's, it's rare. I think, you know, mm-hmm. I think we would all benefit from it, but you know, I think um, 
it's not the way that we were taught in this culture of how to deal with things. Mm -hmm. And so not only does it take personal courage, but you, you also are going against the grain of society, you know, um, people might think you're weird. There's all kinds of things that are potential obstacles, but yeah. One reason why I think they're not as widely used in our Western culture is because you really have to release all semblance of control. Yeah. You're not in control at all. And, um, for many people, um, I think that that is what's most scary is that they're not in control of <clears throat> what they will experience. And that's what, that's where the fear comes from mm-hmm. is that you don't know, you don't know what's going to come up. You're, you're coming into contact with something that's more powerful than you. Right. Right. And <clears throat> excuse me, especially in our, in our Western culture, um, we have been kind of conditioned to think that we are gods or that we are, you know, invincible and that's something we don't ever talk about death or think about death. Um, and so to, to put yourself in a situation where you will be face to face with something that is more powerful than you is humbling mm-hmm. and many people aren't ready for that to be humbled. Yes. And interestingly though, it's comforting like to, to get beyond that fear block and really to come and, you know, the spiritual realm beyond the physical realm and ordinary state of consciousness that we experience. It's a, it's a, a wide world. Um, and you know, not, not everything out there is, uh, like positive, I guess you could say like, and mm-hmm. that's another one of the values of intention is to intentionally direct one's experience to towards healing or towards, um, insight, truth, things like that. Um, because there, there are like darker energies that one can draw in, right. which is our best avoided. <laughs> but, you know, like I, I understand people's fear or hesitation or caution because it's kind of like um, crawling through the armoire into Narnia or something like as a baby, right? And and you're just like, especially with things like DMT or just the very powerful psychedelics, ayahuasca. Um, yeah, humbling is a good word. Like I just go in there, I'm like, oh, wow, I'm less than an ant i am a speck of dust on a speck of dust uh in this wide universe and um and there is consciousness out there that's you know non-human consciousness that is uh incredibly powerful incredibly intelligent uh almost omnipotent Mm. and um and especially some of these plant medicines the the spirit that's in them um somehow they know more about me than I know about themselves. Uh, sorry, than I know about myself, which is interesting. They're showing me myself like, oh, this is you. I'm like, how do you know me and how do you know everything? Um, right. You know, and, and speaking on integration, after that experience to come back to bodily consciousness, ordinary consciousness, 
without understanding that we're not in as much control as we trick ourselves into thinking that we are. Um, so like, you know, what was all that and how do I apply that to this life? How do I apply that to my everyday ordinary self? Mm. Uh, and it's not necessarily easy, but I feel like the psychedelic experience is an introduction to a new perspective. Um, which I feel like is a, a broader perspective that if, if we can understand our place in that perspective, there's some peace and solace in it and there's some comfort in it and understanding that like, oh, I'm riding this wave, you know, I don't have to, I don't have to fight so much mm -hmm. to control my life that actually everything's all right. Um, and you know, you can tap, you can begin to tap into some of that power that exists beyond us that, that I come into contact with. And there's a way to let that flow through you. Like you're talking about that, that loaf of uh, space and time. There's a way to release those anchors and those tethers and kind of like be one with that energy of moving through life where, um, it's hard to describe. It's very abstract, mm -hmm. but, but there, yeah, it's, it's kind of like riding a wave. It's really fun. You're on surfboard. You're not under, you know, maybe you are kind of balancing and there's some, certainly some personal skill in order to like may be on that wave, but you have the full understanding that, that the power that you're riding is not you. You're, you've become one with it, but you know, you are not that powerful. You are not the God necessarily, you know. Right. I like to think about riding the wave, but we are directing it. Mm -hmm. So depending on your or one's choices uh, <clears throat> will determine what direction you are pointing in. So, you know, depending on how you take care of your body, you know, in terms of like just taking care of this physical being, like are you eating healthy foods are you moving or are you just poisoning yourself and remaining stagnant you know that will determine a direction that you are being you know guided in um that that weight you're still riding that wave but perhaps you are facing in a direction you don't want to go and one thing that um psychedelics have helped me uh, understand is that um taking care of my physical body it will help guide me in into a place that I want to go to, as well as um, trusting that when I do take care of my body and I live in what I call like the beauty way or just, you know, with good intentions that I will be guided to where I want to go. So taking care of my physical self and then just trusting in that wave. Mm -hmm. And do you meditate at all? Is that part of uh, your self-care practice? That is a self-care practice that I am continuously attempting to bring in. Um, I have a lot of energy in my body. And um, so I find I get into meditative states easier, say, dancing. Mm -hmm. Like not necessarily like partner dancing, but like, like trance dancing essentially mm -hmm. um 
releasing the mind through movement. Yes, yes. Seated meditation, I have been on a journey with probably since I was like 23, and I'm still working on it. Yeah, it's tricky. It's hard to develop a consistent practice. It is. Yeah, it is. I think a lot of people struggle with that. Yeah, and then like on social media, I see so many people like, oh, I have a daily meditation practice. And I'm like, oh, I don't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I try, but, you know, I, I do other things. But it is something I would like to develop. I ask because um, w- one of the messages I was repeatedly getting from my psychedelic experiences was to meditate mm. because I I noticed that I just, because it basically... Um, I meditate during a psychedelic experience, uh, definitely ayahuasca ceremonies. It's mostly, I'm mostly seated in one place with my eyes closed much of the time. Um, but also on mushrooms, especially like higher doses will bring on this energy that I just want to tune into and I'll just sit and close my eyes and go into that. Mm -hmm. But I'll, I'll notice when I'm in that space that my mind is just so wild you know that like I want to focus on the energy like I want to deepen into it and I want to really like get to know its essence and and uh like I don't know there's just something magical out there to like tease out of that but then my mind will just hijack the plane and just go off in this direction or that direction I have to keep coming back Mm -hmm. and the message I kept getting was you know if you have if you do a little bit of regular meditation and just practice sitting and focusing your mind, then not only will you have greater, greater peace throughout your day in general, but you'll have greater resources available to you to focus in on the things that you want to focus in on, Mm. be it in the psychedelic experience or not. And, um, it took, it's even, even so getting that message multiple times, it still took <laughs> me a while to like develop a regular practice and then I'd fall off and then right. I'd start again. And, but, um, there is something and I, 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 there's something that's difficult about it that it's hard for me to stick to and many other people. And I know so many people have said, Oh yeah. Meditation. That's like, I know I need to do that. Like we, we know. Yeah, we do. But <laughs> I think that it's in a way it takes the same amount of courage that it takes to do a psychedelic experience, but, but in a way even more because coming into contact with the power of the mushrooms or the power of ayahuasca, it gives you something to work with. There's like a psychic pressure or there's a presence there there's some guidance it brings you places you know it's just like entering into a dream Mm. and you're there but the whole dream is happening around you Um, but during meditation in just ordinary consciousness you're just sitting there with the full the full force of your own chaos and um, for me it's it's yeah it's I don't know it's just uncomfortable to sit sit in that and just recognize like wow I'm I'm super unfocused um just having a hard time even just sitting here doing nothing (laughs) it's so difficult it is so difficult so do you have a regular meditation practice I do um how long do you sit for 
Uh, well, I've been, so I, I think about meditation the way I think about physical exercise in that if you're out of shape, when you start exercising again, it hurts and there, you know, you're like sore the next day. Um, and there's a period of time, I guess it depends on how out of shape you are, but there's a period of time where you just have to keep doing it and it hurts. Right. And then eventually you start to acclimate. And then eventually it feels really good. And if you don't exercise for a few days, then you're like, oh, I'm so stiff and sore. And you kind of start to crave it. And I, I think of meditation as exactly that way. Um, so right now I'm in the process of getting back in shape. I'm doing like 20 to 30 minutes per day, mm -hmm. which is, is manageable. Um, but in the past I've done an hour a day or two hours per day, which is a big you know, it's a big commitment, even just time wise for busy people. But right. yeah, I got, I got like really in shape where I just wanted to meditate a lot. Mm -hmm. And there's something that happens where like most people who don't have a practice or haven't, haven't kind of like gotten in meditative shape, haven't had the experience of like a deeply clear mind, you mm -hmm. know? And I think that's worth mentioning because it's like there's something there's something to get out of it that maybe most people aren't aware of and if you just sit if you're just like okay i'm gonna meditate and you sit down for an hour and try and sit for an hour it's like excruciating and it's hard and it takes time to see results like you have to do it every day for at least a couple of weeks mm -hmm. um to really start to feel the the benefits and you have to just like push through that that initial you know several weeks of discomfort but yeah there's something something magical that happens when eventually without exercising effort to do so I'll just notice myself meditating in a place of clarity mm -hmm. where my breathing is just really regular and steady um my mind has just quieted down and it's just kind of like seated within me. Mm -hmm. And I'm just, I'm sitting in a place of awareness um, and I'm not really thinking about anything and I'm not exerting myself mm -hmm. physically or mentally. And there's something deeply restorative about being in that place. And it's tricky cause like I would love to just sit down and be in that place, but you can't, or I can't um, endeavor to get there. It's kind of, it, you, you sort of have to relax into that place mm -hmm. rather than um, there's nothing I can do. It's actually the absence of doing mm -hmm. to be in that place. And periods in my life where I was meditating regularly, I was able to achieve that state, not every time, but... Um, more and more often and then i found that having done the bulk of the work to even get there in the first place and continue to get there and continue to like have my mind seated deeper within my being um when i wasn't in meditation i would walk around in the world and i was so clear you know or like the little things that would bother me you know just like i don't know little stuff like being stuck in traffic or somebody being a little bit rude or whatever, just didn't care. Like I, I could see it for what it was that 
Um, you know, it didn't have anything to do with me. Somebody being rude, it's like that I didn't take it personally. It's just so many things were just like water off of a, a duck's back, you know, and mm. I was able to maintain that, that clarity. And, um, but even more than that, the things that I had to do in my life, you know, my tasks and, or whatever I was trying to develop my projects, I could see the clear route to what I wanted to do. Um, and it's kind of hard to explain, but I just, there's like a visionary quality that I got into touch with of just like, Oh, like I see how to not waste effort. I see exactly what it is I want to accomplish and how to get there. And I have, I have the energy to do so. I'm not exhausted. Like I can just operate effectively. Mm. So yeah. And then, you know, life happens and sometimes you spiral out from that place because it does, it does take a commitment to do that every day. Mm. Um, and I feel better when I do longer sits, but even just doing five minutes per day, it's, the consistency aspect is even more important than the time. So like if somebody wanted to meditate for say 10 minutes a day for 30 day period and just commit, like I'm, I can find 10 minutes a day every day for this month. You'll, you'll see results. Mm -hmm. Um, so it doesn't actually take that much time, but it's, yeah, there it's, there's a lot to gain from practicing that, you know, practicing just, just being and and noticing the parts of the mind that want to do like oh am Mm -hmm. i doing this right judging myself oh i'm slouching oh like i my mind just wandered away again i suck at this uh Mm -hmm. you know i mean it's actually hard to maintain focus and presence even for a solid minute in a relaxed fashion Mm -hmm. and i like to say that if i and meditating, I'm doing it right. Like if I have made it past all of the excuses to not meditate and I'm sitting down, I'm doing it, I'm doing it right, you know? Uh, and there are better ways to do it, but there's no wrong way to meditate. That's how I think of it. Mm-hmm. Because um, my when I was first beginning my practice, I had so much judgment of like, what is meditation? What's the goal of meditation? Um, and you know, I'm terrible at it and I'm doing it wrong. (laughs) And it was so stressful. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. I'm like, this is supposed to be relaxing. It's the complete opposite. I'm super stressed out just sitting here with my eyes closed. This is terrible. Getting angry. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I eventually realized I'm like, no, that's not. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's not where it's at. So I've, I've been through many of the um, experiences you just spoke to. And the last time I had a, the last period of my life, I had a very consistent meditation practice. I felt the most clear I have in my entire life. And mm. um, it was actually when I was finishing graduate school and I like really devoted to my meditation practice. And like the school I went to actually had a meditation room, which was amazing. Um, so I would just go in the middle of class periods and go and sit. But then it's like... Once I was done with grad school, I was like, we, okay, I don't have to do anything with the discipline anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, I've been feeling the call to get back into it. However, I've noticed that for me right now, what I'm working on right now actually is um, sobriety from cannabis because oh. cannabis kind of like took over my life and I'm not 
allowing her into my field Mm -hmm. anymore for the time being. Um, And I can sense within my body that this next period of meditation will be even more profound I guess you can say I don't know that's not maybe not the right word but um, fruitful fruitful I like that word fruitful Mm -hmm. because my energy field will be clear and I won't have the energy of cannabis around me even though I I wouldn't like be high all the time but you know I might have gotten high like four hours ago or like 10 hours ago and it's still in my system but now I'm completely clear and so I, I can I'm, I've, I've allowed my body to like go through this process first and now I'm like s- do my seated practice I'm glad we're talking about this yeah reminding me yeah <laughs> did you uh how long have you been sober from cannabis <clears throat> since January 1st okay so almost two months um did you when I s- first stopped smoking cannabis I noticed it took about two weeks or so but there was this really subtle cloud that I had been over my mind that I didn't notice until it was gone. Mm-hmm. It took about two weeks to kind of like fully lift off. Um, or maybe even more than that, but and the, the threshold amount to be like, Oh, whoa! like I have access to parts of my intellect that I didn't, that I kind of lost touch with a little bit. Did yeah. you have a, a similar experience? Yes. Like it was actually very profound for me. I felt like I had been living life with like, cotton balls over my third eye Mm. it's just like the so the sense of a cloud hanging over Mm -hmm. it was very visceral for me and um i'm recovering codependent and what does that mean so you know i say i'm recovering because i'm aware of my codependent behaviors and i'm actively working on not engaging in them so for me codependency manifests as um, manipulation of situations to make myself be presented and seen in a certain way. So I can't, I'm like a chameleon, so I can change who I am to ben, uh, to make the other like me mm-hmm. or feel happy with me or, um, yeah, those are the two big ones, liking me and feeling happy with me. Um, I also, my codependent behaviors manifest as, um, manipulating, um, people to, um, by way of making them think they're making decisions for themselves, but I'm actually driving the situation Mm -hmm. so that I'll feel safe. Mm-hmm. So codependency comes from a sense of lack of safety in oneself. And it usually stems from people who have um, parents or family members that are alcoholics or um, that, you know, drug abusers. And it's from, you know, in early childhood, um, our nervous systems are imprinted with like emotional patterns and codependency um, stems stemming from having parents who drink alcohol um, comes from the fact that when our parents were inebriated, we weren't being met with emotional safety or um, um, emotional recognitions in the way that our nervous system needed. And so 
for me that manifested as like feeling like I needed to save my family and like the only way that I would know how to do that would to make them happy with me so I was really good at school I like was the goody goody I didn't do anything bad mm-hmm. <laughs> I didn't like cross my parents because as long as they were happy with me then my family unit would be safe and I put that on myself so um, in excuse me, <clears throat> in the years that I um, you smoked cannabis, um, you know it started out as fun and you know laughing, giggling, you know having the munchies, um, turned into like crippling anxiety, and it would just like spark these codependent behaviors of like manipulating people. And they wouldn't even know I'd be manipulating them because I was that good at it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, That's like one of my greatest fears is like being being manipulated in that fashion. It's yeah. like somebody pulling my strings, you know. Right. And actually, it's it's amazing how many people, mainly women, um, I'd say most codependents that I've met are women, uh, have this tendency And like people, when they hear the word codependency, they think, oh, they're just like addicted to a relationship or like they are, uh, you know, fueling someone else's addiction. And that's part of it. Like you can be codependent with someone and in order for you to feel valued or worthy of living is based upon their opinion of you. Mm -hmm. Um, But there's more to it. And um as I, you know, dove into learning about these behaviors and um, learning about my my inability to have healthy relationships because of this nervous system imprintation, um, I began to realize how much cannabis evoked these behaviors within me. And I know this to be like cannabis, like showing me like, hey, mm. you need to look at this. Um, but I didn't look at it for years and I have a partner who refuses for me to be codependent with him. And he's always like, Danelle, like, stop, like, what are you doing? And he'll like call me out Mm. when I fall back into those patterns and I'll try to manipulate him. I won't even know I'm doing it. It's just so ingrained in who I am. He's like, you're trying to control me. Why are you controlling me? I'm like, oh, I didn't even realize I was doing it. He's Mm -hmm. like, what's wrong? I'm like, I just don't feel safe right now. And like, that's always the underlying cause is codependents don't feel safe. So it's like that root chakra family unit um, instability. Mm -hmm. And so now that I am clear of cannabis, like I had periods last year where I didn't use it, but then... I always had this thought like, oh, I can just like use it once in a while. But it's like as soon as you for me, as soon as I used it once, I would just like fall back into the pattern of using it every day. Um, But now that I have like I've made like a pact with cannabis, I'm like, no, like I honor you and I love you because you really showed me a, a lot of my life. But I can't have you in my body system right now. Um, I feel like this switch, this turnaround where I, I like the codependency, I, I now feel like I'm in recovery. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I say I'm a recovering codependent. Uh-huh. I don't need to manipulate people anymore. I can be my authentic self and I can be 
who I actually am and I will be loved. Mm -hmm. And I can also receive love that people are giving me. And um, actually, I don't know if the camera see, but I got these tattoos on my fingers actually to signify that. So like this, the the fourth finger here is considered like the Venus finger or the love finger. And um, so it's just a reminder that I can give and receive love and not have to control or manipulate. Mm -hmm. I can trust that. Yeah. (laughs) I'm glad that we're talking about this and bringing this up. Um, I, I've experienced a lot of codependent. Well, I've experienced a lot of uh, attempts to manipulate me. Like I said, it was one of my greatest fears. Um, I was manipulated a lot when I was younger and I've developed an eye for it. Mm. You know, there's a certain, there's a feel to when someone's pulling on me. Mm-hmm. Right. And, but I, I, I noticed that, um, most people don't even know that they're doing it, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I'll, I'll point it out. Like it pretty much appears constantly in my own personal relationships, my own romantic relationships, um, much more than friendships. But, um, yeah, like, I don't know. It's a silent plague. <laughs> it is. It's, it's, it affects a lot of people. And like I said, I mean, I, I know there are codependent men. Sure. Um, but almost every codependent that I've met or a person who resonates with the definition of codependency are women. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's like this lack of sense of safety and you know, as I've done my own ancestral work and, and looking at the history of, you know, how women bodies have been treated or how female forms have been, you know, worked with throughout the millennia, it's, I, I'm not surprised why women don't feel safe. Mm-hmm. So it's like having to manipulate and control their surroundings. So we just feel safe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think security is a big, big part of it too. Mm-hmm. Um, something I've encountered a lot in my relationships is a a fear of abandonment. Right. That's, um, and I think that there's my past partners have derived some emotional security from me or from our relationship that it's a point of stability for her, uh, a point of security. And there's a fear of losing that, Mm -hmm. of being, being abandoned and then, and then being out on one's own again. Um, and I've noticed that the women that um, don't exercise that um, need to manipulate or desire to, um, they're much more secure in themselves, much more independent, um, and yeah, kind of more comfortable like being uh, being on their own and kind of yeah, mm-hmm. I don't know, it's more self-directed, mm-hmm. but. Yeah, I think, and I, I think that men probably struggle with that too. There's varying degrees, right? Right, right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's um, it, it's not their fault. It's literally a nervous system, like reptilian brain conditioning, mm-hmm. and it's it's unconscious behavior patterns, and so most most people who are codependent don't, don't know that they are and they're just operating in this continued continuous like fight flight or freeze that they're just always feeling unsafe in their life and in their relationships and 
and it comes out mostly in romantic partnerships because you your you know our energies become so intertwined and you start to really see the person for who they are and like you know you play a mirror for one another and those behaviors just become accentuated Mm -hmm. but i mean i've seen them in i mean in my own life i've you know exercised codependent behaviors with employers Mm -hmm. and with teachers you Mm -hmm. know like i imagine that it's it's a natural part of the human animal to some extent you know it's Mm -hmm. like a survival instinct Mm -hmm. to to want to be you know included in the tribe you know like because our our brains are uh you know tens or hundreds of thousands of years old well beyond uh, modern society and civilization when humans were in much smaller groups of people and the repercussions of being an outcast were severe if not deadly Mm -hmm. and i think you know there's probably some powerful biological mechanisms that that keep us wanting to be loved or wanting to be accepted and well liked in good standing in the tribe or um you know we're not long we're no longer in tribes but we still kind of behave like that right we can't eliminate that i think we can layer. overcome it right. but it takes a lot of awareness you have to you have to dig into that part of the self and first understand wh- th- what you're doing and why you're doing it and then like oh i'm seeking security from this other person how can i derive that from within myself um Oh, I, you know, like I'm desperate for love from other people. Well, does that mean I'm not loving myself enough or, yeah, you know, right. like what, what's, what's the way that I can get to that in a more direct route? Right. What needs aren't being met? Well, um, I want to talk about some other things too. Sounds good. Um, I want to talk about your wellness practice, but okay. first I wanted to ask you a about your interest in history because mm. you have a history minor, don't you? Is that uh, right? That's my bachelor's. I have my bachelor's. Oh, your bachelor's. In okay. Yes. So, um, uh, I, I have an interest in history as well. So oh. I wanted to ask you about that. I, I, that. I don't have like formal academic studies, but just like personal interest and, mm-hmm. um, have studied a lot of history on my own. So did you have a particular focal point of history, a particular time period that you, are drawn to or um yeah well and while i was in undergrad i really became fascinated with african history which um unfortunately i was drunk and high a lot of the time so (laughs) i i can't regurgitate much of the information Mm -hmm. um but i just i've always had a draw to like ancient civilizations, ancient history. And uh, I had a professor named Professor Brantley who she was an ethno-historian of um, Eastern African tribes. And so it's like a mix of anthropology and history. And she just blew my mind. I was like, this is amazing history that I had never heard about. Africa is a huge continent. Huge. And there's... Much larger than people realize. Yeah, it's ginormous. (laughs) And I mean, there were kingdoms that lasted thousands of years there that were really influential to like 
um, Asian history and European history. And um, so I, I really got into African history. Hmm. And then I also had an interest, you know, during my time at UC Davis in um, post-industrial America, actually. So industrial revolution on, and I got really into like conspiracy theories and, mm-hmm. cool. and, and looking at, you know, what the history books say happened versus what actually might have happened. And, um, and now I'm really interested um, because I'm on this like ancestral remembrance path at the moment of um, old Europe mm-hmm. and, Really, I'm look. I've been most interested recently in the history of how people healed, and how people took care of themselves, and how like the history of medicine essentially. Mm-hmm. But I I love history. To me, it's like a story time. And one one of my psychic abilities is I'm able to like transport myself back into that time and be able to like viscerally experience what is being talked about or like if I go to like an ancient site or like a a place where people once were I am able to like be in that time when it was and Mm -hmm. so I just there's a word for that is it there's actually I can't remember what it is unfortunately in this moment but um there's a word for being being in places or um touching objects and um like receiving information about the history of that object interesting like you kinda, yeah i'm gonna have to look that up yeah i wish i could remember what the word is it's a very specific word yeah it was when i was at uc davis where i realized i was like oh my god like well, i'd be listening to a lecture and i'd be sitting there like taking notes and you know watching the slides but my spirit or something was like in ancient molly or mm-hmm. <laughs> like in um you know the gold mines of South Africa. I wonder if you had a history flashback that first time you smoked cannabis and you saw like cavalry running down the hill. Maybe. If like that happened, you know, 150 years ago (laughs) or something or a hundred years ago. You know, that's a good point. Um, It's actually interesting for me to now like be around in this area. I have to actually turn off this ability because I'm, I'm like my parents, they actually live in Santa Rosa and my, my childhood home, I always felt like strange in like there was, I've had experiences with ghosts and there was definitely a ghost that lives there, but like the land where the subdivision is has always felt weird mm-hmm. to me. And, um, just a few years ago, I decided to like open myself up and like tune into the land and there were some really terrible things that happened there. And then they just like, you know, bulldozed all the oaks and built houses on top. I'm like, oh my God, no wonder this land feels so strange. Um, mm. I'm not touching an object. So why do you like history? Uh, well, I was hoping that you would talk about post-industrial oh. America. <laughs> oh, okay. I can do that. Like why uh, I was interested in that? Or? Well, so I, I got interested. I think that's what got me more interested in history was, you know, I, I don't know. I was a good student too. I learned, I learned the history that they taught me. I didn't, I didn't fully swallow the pill though. There was something about it that I don't know, just didn't, just didn't feel right, but I didn't know what it was. But, um, you know, there's conspiracy theory and there's conspiracy fact, 
And there are known facts in American history of um, conspiracies that were contrived and executed that are the opposite of what we were told in school. And I think they still teach this, even though we now know for sure that... So let's see, one example... Uh, we're taught that in World War One, the United States entered uh, the war in Europe because the Lusitania was sunk by a German U-boat. Right. And uh, the Lusitania was just like a passenger l- cruise liner or something like that, a non, non-combative vessel that the Germans sunk and that that was an act of war. And that's what brought us into the war. But... Uh, We now know for a fact that the United States was sending war materials to Britain and and the Germans were attacking those boats and they decided, oh, we're going to send war materials uh, through cruise liners and things like that, passenger ships to ferry bombs and ammunition and stuff like that to um, support the war effort in Britain. And the Germans knew about it, and they said, hey, you are the United States. You're supposed to not be in this war. If you continue to do this, we'll consider, we'll consider you an enemy combatant, and we'll be forced to attack you. We ignored that, uh, and they, sent, they kept sending boats over, and then uh, one of their subs sunk our boat. And actually, and so that's fact. And we don't we don't know the thought process of the American government at that time, but uh, we think that they wanted that to happen. That they they knew that would happen. It would give the United States an excuse to enter the war. The American government wanted to enter the war. Uh, American corporations that had now invested a lot in Britain and would only get paid if Britain won. So the power elite of America was was invested financially in. Britain winning and they wanted to enter the war to make sure that we would come out on top. But the American public was very, very against entering the war. They absolutely did not want to get involved in Europe's war at all. So it would have been extremely pop unpopular politically. You know, they, they had to create some kind of motive, some kind of public outrage in order to justify entering the war. And, and the Lusitania was it. So, but they still teach in history books, or at least when I was in school, that uh, you know we were the the victims of this brutal, vicious attack by the Germans. Right. I believe the term is false flag operation. Yeah. Right. Yes. I think that's something that has happened more than once. Multiple times. Many times. And some proven, some unproven. Right. Yeah. Yeah. The. Um, I'm not sure what where to go from there, but it's the post-industrial United States or s- stories are just fascinating because so much changed so quickly. Mm-hmm. And um, what era would what's the post-industrial era? Where so, does that start? So let's say like uh, mid 1880s mm-hmm. to present. Sure. Yeah. So like that, you know. That was really the period of the rise of the United States as a superpower. Too. Right, right. The right the massive then. immigration, um, you know, the world wars, the Great Depression, um, the the rise of capitalism. You know, the the real um, transformation of the way you know, government handles people, government handles 
our life. Um, you know, I, I just, I grew fascinated with how quickly things transformed and, um, you know, just to think about what happened from the year 1900 to 2000. I mean, the United States went through so many different iterations and that's more than, uh, any other country in any other time period in the world. And, and so, you know, going back to, you know, false flag operations, I, I feel like that um, though those sorts of things like the Lusitania is what helped propel the United States through this change is by forcing change, essentially. Totally. So, yeah, I'm not sure what exactly you want to talk about there. But, oh, I don't know. I yeah. just wanted to touch on it for a moment because yeah. we share that interest. But, yeah, the, the interesting thing is, um, you know, there was deceit in the American government, um, also a similar incident, World War II, right. of prior knowledge of the Japanese fleet uh, approaching Pearl Harbor. Right. And uh, b- and also the United States kind of like acting against Japan uh, in a non-military fashion um, in the Pacific, kind of impeding their progress and, you know, basically kind of provoking an attack. But anyway... Um, Interestingly, even though there was deceit on the part of the American government, um, the United States' role in World War One and World War Two basically brought us from like a non-important country in the world in 1900 mm-hmm. to uh, the most powerful nation in the world by the end of World War Two. You know, the not just not just the military outcome, but more so the economic outcome. Just a term. Because Europe was the, the power center of the world at that point, post-colonial. And um, there was a massive transfer of wealth from Europe to the United States. Uh, and they got devastated by both of those wars. And we came out on top as a superpower. Mm-hmm. And so our parents' generation and our generation, you know, we are living in the greatest country in the world. And, but, you know, we're, we benefit from basically these wars and you know certainly world war ii and stopping the nazis was important but you know they went they they went against what the public wanted the uh the elite of the country guided us into into those actions through manipulation because in world war ii also the american public didn't want to get involved right you know Right. The American public doesn't want to get involved in most wars. I mean, same thing with Vietnam War. I mean, it was, right. we were just kind of standing on the side of the French and being like, no, this Viet- Vietnam, you need to remain a French colony. Mm-hmm. And the, the Vietnamese people wanted their independence. And so the United States clearly has been just a bully in this, in this fashion. But that's my own opinion. You know, yeah. That's, that's clear. Clearly not based on fact that's just sure my own assessment i think that's true and i think that the united states gets a bad rap certainly around the world um i think a lot of other people uh, other countries learn a truer history of the united states than we learn in our own schools we learn propaganda um and i think that we we deserve some criticism criticism right (laughs) But I also, part of me, you know, trying to be more objective and fair, I think that looking at a broader history, it's like, you know, it's 
it's been a game of dominance and control of nations over another. And if it wasn't the United States, it might have been some other dominant country. Right. Might have been Russia. Might have been Germany. You know, if if they had won World War One or World War Two. Right. And um, Japan. And Japan. Yeah. So, you know, there are a lot of nations out there with um, imperialist uh, aspirations and we just happen to be the winner. And so, you know, we get a lot of the boohooing, but right. I think it's a, it's, it's a human mentality, unfortunately, more than a American mentality. Right. And I think we get the boohooing because our, imp- our, you know, the United States imperialist nature occurred during the time of mass media and like photography and videography but if you look at britain and their imperialist history i mean mm-hmm. they and the french and, and the french and belgium and you know the way that africa was taken over i mean if there was mass media during that time and it was recorded how they treated you know the humans there w- they would have been equally, if not more, criticized. It's just today we live in an era where, you know, anybody can take a photo or a video and put it on the internet. And it, and the truth of the matter gets out so much more easily. Right. You know. Right. Exactly. And, you know, I, I know there's criticism about China, you know, taking over, uh, you know, Chinese thinking like Bhutan or Tibet are part of China, but Tibetans and the, is it Bhutanese? I don't know how to. <laughs> sure. That sounds right. <laughs> um, they're like, no, no, we're like, we are, you know, we're our own countries. And, you know, but because I think media is more restricted there, it's not getting out as quickly. And the spotlight is on the United States right now because of what's currently happening politically. Um, but one thing I, I just recently realized and thought of is how there are um, American military be- bases all over the world. And it's like how Hundreds. St- like how strange. Like yeah. what, we have military bases all over Europe and in Japan. and Everywhere. Every, yeah, everywhere. But if any other country would attempt to do that, we'd get upset anyway. Yeah. The hypocriticism is... Yeah, the United States has, um, I'm not sure the exact number, but well over 100 military bases in other countries that we know of. Right. And there are secret bases, too. Right, right. For some reason, 153 is coming up. I don't know. Yeah, I thought it was like 180, somewhere in that range, but that's That's quite a a lot. (laughs) That's a lot, and that's a lot of American people that live there. Yeah. So... Yeah, history. And we, you know, we dominate other countries into letting us have that, you know, like what country would be like, oh, yeah, uh, I want the most powerful military country in my, you know, in my backyard. Right. But, you know, uh, I read this book called Confessions of an Economic Hitman, Mm. which was fascinating. And um, I think he was part of the CIA, but he talked about um, some of the strategies used by the American government and intelligence agencies to get other countries to do what we want, that we have certain points of leverage, um, uh, economic, diplomatic, political, military, 
even assassinations Mm -hmm. to coerce other countries into doing you know yeah we're basically a bully you know right or maybe we're codependent i don't know maybe manipulating the world uh, <laughs> just maybe to, one day we'll sort this all out yeah <laughs> united states needs to take a dose of <laughs> entheogens yeah <laughs> well we're two americans doing it maybe maybe more will join we'll start to wake up out of the fog of uh propaganda and start right. to realize what's going on hopefully hopefully i mean um you know when i see the news like if if someone i don't have cable tv but if someone i know is watching the news like for example my partner's parents his father you know watches the news nightly news religiously mm-hmm. and if i'm over at their house and like i'm watching the news with them it is just so freaking clear how it's just pure propaganda and i'm like this is this looks like a reality TV show. Mm-hmm. And they're I, so aggressive with their graphics and their tone. Right. Aggressive. It's <laughs> like, whoa, like I, I can see right through it. But then I look at, you know, his family and they're just eating it up. And, you know, they regurgitate the, regurgitate the talking points. And yeah. I'm like, whoa, this is it's crazy. It's very sophisticated. You know, they use very sophisticated psychological methods to hook people in. Emotional manip- manipulation mm-hmm, mm-hmm. through television programming. Yeah, exactly. Programming your mind. Right. People don't realize like the actual word is telling you what is actually happening. Yeah. Yeah. I oh, please go ahead. Uh, my friend also likes to point out the uh, friend of mine, Johnny Coyote. The word government uh, breaks. What government means is govern is to control and ment mente is mind. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah, see, words really tell the truth. They're spells, casting spells. So Mm -hmm. it's interesting. Mm -hmm. Spelling, have you heard that one? You know, when we speak, we're spelling. Mm -hmm. Casting spells. Yeah. Mm. Well, let's talk about your wellness practice. Oh, okay. So um, what is your, what's the name of your business? So... Or what do you call it? Yeah. Right, right. So I'm like my like registered business name is different, um, but I have a I, I call it a project. It's called Cervical Wellness, mm-hmm. and I work in the field of women's health. So I educate, inform, and empower women to be in charge of their gynecological and reproductive health and to make informed decisions um, thereof. So I mainly work with women who have abnormal pap smears. So pap smear is a gynecological exam that women go through, used to be every year, but now because of insurance and Obamacare, it's every three years, which I think is not a good idea. Because one thing about women's reproductive health is unlike in male anatomy, everything is inside of our bodies. And unless uh, when something is wrong, we can't know. We don't know unless you have like severe pain or um, like, um, you know, abnormal menstruation cycles or whatnot. So my work... um, is really about helping women not be afraid 
of this region of their body. Many women have a lot of shame and fear and guilt when it comes to their reproductive health, their reproductive system, um, you know, their sexual organs. And to um, not give their power over to the doctors when it comes to this region of their body. I do a lot of education. So I just talk to women and men about like what's going on inside of a woman's body. Like what is actually happening and with men, like what are you interacting with when you engage in sex? Um, I focus my work on the cervix, which is a um, portion of the female reproductive system that is like, it's called the tip of the uterus. It sits at the end of the vaginal canal. So it's the portion of the woman's body that gets examined during a pap smear. And um, it is becomes gravely affected when exposed to HPV, the human papillomavirus, which then, if not taken care of, um, can manifest into cervical cancer. And so cervical cancer rates are on the rise all over the world. And I work with women to not only address the physical um, reasons why there is like unwellness there, but also work on the emotional and energetic reasons as well, which generally have to do with relationship to sex, relationship to one's own sexuality and sexual being, and, you know, going back to those emotional tethers, um, processing of adverse sexual experiences. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so um, tell us a little bit more about HPV, because it's... Um, I should know more about it, but is HPV the one that like almost everyone has? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. So HPV is a virus. Mm-hmm. Um, there are actually about 150 strains of HPV and they can be carried in um, the, the throat and the mouth, in the vaginal canal, in the anal canal, and also um, on the head, shaft, and base of the penis. So um, it is a sexually transmitted infection, although you can pass HPV via kissing as well because it can be harbored in the mouth. And if it's in the mouth, does it spread to the whole body or just Um, stays locally? No, it can just stay locally. If you ever have any sort of like canker sores um, in the mouth, that means you have a strain of HPV. And is HPV different than herpes? No, it's the same thing. So herpes is a strain of HPV. So there are strains of HPV that don't manifest as anything. You just have them in your system. Now, the reason why HPV is talked about so much in terms of women's health is because there are five strains of HPV that cause cancer in the cervix. And um, if a male is carrying the strain of HPV on his penis, he won't know he has it because unlike other strains of HPV, which will manifest as genital warts, Um, These strains of HPV on a male body doesn't really do anything. And so he can just be a carrier of it. And there's no test for it. Is that correct? 
you know, I've been doing some research into this. I think there are tests being developed, Mm -hmm. although I don't think it's easy to get. Like, you can't just go to a Planned Parenthood and be like, I want to be tested for HPV. Um, Although I think it is changing because of how rapidly um, this virus is spreading. It is like an epidemic, how many people have it. When I looked at um, the statistics, this was like four years ago, and these might have been from like t- the 2010 census, um, over 79 million Americans have HPV, and that's that they know of. Yeah. So. And that's any strain of HPV, or that's not the, the five cancer-causing No, that's, not, ones, no, that's not the five cancer-causing one. That's yeah. any, any uh-huh. HPV. And so it is said that most sexual sexually active Americans will contract HPV at some point in their life. Now, what is what what will make HPV then transform into say like cervical cancer is when the immune system of the human body of the female body is not strong enough to combat the virus. And so the HPV virus is just like the cold virus. So mm-hmm. it's like if you if your immune system is healthy, it can do what it needs to do and, you know, stave off the virus. Although it's just like like the chicken pox virus that once you have it in your system, you'll always have it. Mm-hmm. So it's um, it's Im- important to take that into consideration. I have women say like, oh, well, I had HPV when I was 19 or 18 and, and then it went away, but now I'm 32 and it's back. Like, what does that mean? I'm like, well, either you were exposed to another strain or your immune system was compromised in some way and it like flushed out again. Mm-hmm. Um, so let's see. I'm not, where, where shall I go from here? Uh, well, how did you, how did you get into this field? Mm. So I got my master's in integrative health. And while I was in grad school, um, you know, we, we were learning all about different ways of healing, about health in general, about what I call lifestyle medicine. So how the way you live your life affects your overall health and wellness. And, um, the reason I went to grad school in this field is because, um, I wanted to learn more about healing that, you know, going way back to the beginning of our conversation when I said I, you know, got deep into into spirituality and and healing modalities, I wanted to learn more and I wanted to help people heal essentially, but I was never called to doing like body work or, um, you know, herbalism. I wanted to learn like like broad brush strokes, how can people heal? So I, while I was in graduate school, uh, I was also going through my own healing journey. So I was diagnosed with HPV and cervical dysplasia, which that's just like a fancy term that means abnormal cells on the cervix when I was 19. And, and those... You, those, those are those you, are co-diagnoses that usually that um, come when when the doctor says you oh your pap test came back abnormal, so a woman will go get a pap smear, and it's either normal or abnormal, and if it's normal that means nothing's wrong down there, if it's abnormal it means you have cervical dysplasia, 
Sounds scary. It's uh, it's so scary, but it's just a really fancy term that means you have some abnormal cells. And if left unchecked, those abnormal cells will con- continue to mutate and become even more abnormal, which can then lead to cervical cancer. So so when you get that diagnosis of cervical dysplasia, mm-hmm. some it has to be addressed at that point. Or, or is that... Because I know that... Um, um, yeah, I don't, I don't know as much as I could or should about this, but, um, there's some, yeah. there's some tests where they like go and like take a sample of the cells on the cervix. It's, that's different than a pap smear, right? They like grab off part of your cervix, right? And then test it. Yes. It's called a colposcopy. Okay. And it's like a biopsy of the cervix where they, it's like, if you think of like a little hole punch, mm-hmm. they, um, like, so the cervix, if looking at, so I wish we had a, had a photo, um, but if like you're looking through the vaginal canal, the cervix sits at the very end and it's like this little round body part. It's pretty small. It's like, kind of looks like a donut. It, it, it does look like a donut. So the cervix has a face and it has a mouth, which is the cervical oz. And it's like the neck of the uterus. Mm-hmm. So it has a face, a mouth and a neck. So it's like a little one of like the woman just down there. And when you have a colposcopy, they take um, biopsies at the 12 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 6 o'clock, and 9 o'clock around the cervical oz. So there's a portion of the cervix where these abnormal cells occur, and it's called the transformation zone or the squamocolumnar junction. Mm -hmm. And what that is is the cervix... The way it regenerates and grows cells is like a torus. So um, from the inside of the cervical oz, which is um, the mouth, um, cells will grow outward and like come to the face. And so as the cervix... From the inside of the donut to the outside of the donut. Essentially, yes. And so the cells on the inside of the, the, the cervical canal, those are called columnar cells, which are very long, skinny cells. Yet as they travel and move through the cervical canal, cervical canal and come out to the face, um, they change shape and they, became, they become squamous cells, which are very short, fat cells. So these, the, the, the cells of the cervix are literally going through a transformation. And the region in which they go through this metamorphosis is right around the outside of the opening of the hole, mm-hmm. or the donut hole, the cervical oz. And that's called the transformation zone. And so if you think of like when a caterpillar is metamorphosizing into a butterfly, in that in-between state, it's very vulnerable and very susceptible to damage. And that is true for these cells as well. So a pap smear is essentially just like a quick swab of this area Mm -hmm. to get a general assessment to see how these cells are transforming. The doctors will look to see like, okay, do I see any abnormalities in this area? Um, and then the pap smear is just to get like a broad brushstroke. Okay, how is this going? And if the pap smear shows like, oh, maybe there's something wrong here. Oh, and she has HPV. Well, we want to get a closer look at what exactly is going on here. And so they'll take what's called a colposcopy. And that's where they do like 
they take like a chunk mm-hmm. out of the cervix, which doesn't feel good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not like with any anesthesia or anything. It's like mm-hmm. it's it makes you bleed and it's painful. <clears throat> Um, to get a better understanding of what grade of cervical dysplasia there is. So is it just, there's like SIN1. I don't remember what SIN means. It's like some long acronym. SIN1, 2, or 3. And then there's um, like carcinoma in situ, which is like just about cancer. And then there's cancer. So the reason why I got into this is because I had this. I had HPV and SIN2 cervical dysplasia. So it was like just beyond beginning abnormality, like into like full on abnormal cells. And my doctors told me because you're so young, you should be able to heal because the cervix is always forming new cells, just like every other part of our body. It's like continuously moving to a place of homeostasis balance and health and so because I was so young the doctors told me that oh you you know you should be able to heal and they didn't give me any tips or insights or wisdom or knowledge and so I just were they saying that you might just heal on your own yeah and that that, your body would just take care of it yeah and that happens often for women who are diagnosed at a young age Mm mm-hmm um, so I just lived my life. And as I said before, I was kind of a wild party girl <laughs> and I didn't take care of myself. And I had a lot of, you know, unprotected sex when I wasn't actually fully aroused. And, you know, that's like a whole other thing about safety of the cervix um, in sex for women and the importance of foreplay and the importance of being fully aroused before allowing penetration, which I, I can get into in a little bit. Um so, you know, long story short, uh, for four years, I had this diagnosis and I had seven colposcopies. Wow. Um, I experienced a lot of medical bullying. I remember my doctor telling me, well, you just need to stop having so much sex. I <laughs> thought that was she she thought that was the was like a con- contributing factor to I guess. Uh, <laughs> And now knowing what you know, is that ridiculous for her to say that? Um, I wish you would have said, maybe wait until you're fully aroused before you allow someone to enter into you. And if you feel pain in your cervix when you're having sex, then that is damaging your cervix. Uh-huh. Um, <laughs> but to tell a woman just to stop having sex um, is not really, doesn't really... It's not reasonable. No. It's not going to happen. No. <laughs> um, so... I, after four years of this diagnosis, I got sent away to another doctor, actually a teaching hospital, because I wasn't listening to my doctors. I wasn't getting the surgeries. The only treatment options are to get the HPV vaccine. And so I was like, well, if I have the vaccine, I mean, if I have HPV already, why would I need the vaccine? Like, mm-hmm. that just doesn't make sense. Or the other options were surgeries. So essentially they deface or they shave off the face of the cervix in hopes of just physically removing the cells will stop it. Or there's like cryosurgery where they burn the cell. I mean, they freeze the cells off. I mean, basically it's just let's cut away the bad Mm -hmm. in hopes that it will be okay. And those options just never settled well with me. You know, I, I was... Around. So did you move up from SIN2 where they were wanting to uh, explore some of those more 
invasive options? Um, I actually had moved up from sin one to sin two. Oh, okay. So that's when they started. Right. Well, they, they, um, give those options right off the bat. Oh, okay. Like as soon as a woman has cervical dysplasia, even sin one, which is like basic, like cells are starting to show some abnormalities. They'll be like, Oh, let's just cut it off. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, like that just, my own body was telling me like, no, please don't do that to me. Mm-hmm. Please don't do that to me. Cause they, they don't, they do it maybe under general anesthesia or maybe no anesthesia. And the cervix is extremely sensitive. I mean, women can have cervical orgasms because of how many um, nerves are there. And it's, I I just, I didn't want to do it. (laughs) So I went to this teaching hospital and I had another, my like I think it was my final colposcopy and it was an actual OBGYN and I was in this teaching hospital room. So like you think like, you know, think back to like house or, you know, any of those shows about hospitals or there's like the little table with like the big room with seats all around. Like I was in one of those rooms, but it was just me and the doctors. It was like open and cold and, Mm -hmm. you know, doing these sorts of exams are very vulnerable and exposing and I mean you're being penetrated and scraped in your innermost areas and there's no consideration for like being in your body or like being relaxed and it's just very like in do it and it's there's there is a lot of trauma that can occur in the gynecologist's office um and you know throughout this exam um, I just remember being like, oh my God, like I can't do this anymore. Like this, this, I'm not healing. What's wrong with me? Something's wrong with me. And the doctor, when she was done, she came and like put her hand on my leg and like looked me in the eyes and said, well, you refuse our treatments. I'm sorry. There's nothing we can do for you. <laughs> and so like I walked out of the hospital being like, I'm going to get cancer and I'm going to die. Mm-hmm. Okay. This is great. Like these people who I bestowed all of my trust in have basically told me I'm a lost cause. Mm-hmm. And in that moment, or not in that moment, uh, I went home and I took a shower and I was just like sobbing in the shower because I was just so distraught because I felt like something was seriously wrong with me. And all of a sudden, like this like light came within my body. And in that moment, I decided I was going to figure it out myself. It's like, okay, if they're not going to help me and they're not going to give me any information, I'm going to freaking figure this out myself and I'm going to heal. And so I took myself on a healing journey. And um, so for three years, I explored everything about the cervix, about cervical dysplasia, about women's health, um, about HPV. And, you know, while I was in graduate school, I really took time to um, look through research and look through you know the resources that were offered to me Um, that was one of my interests while I was in in graduate school and finally you know seven years after my initial diagnosis I get a call from my doctor on a Saturday which is very strange because normally she would just send me um, a message via like the online messaging service via the, the hospital mm-hmm. and she called me she said Danelle I you know I just had a pap like a few days before and she's like I had to call you because your pap came back clear your HPV's it's gone 
it's not showing any signs in your body and your cervix is healthier than I've ever seen it. Wow. And so that was, that was a striking result for her. Like, had she seen that before? I don't believe so. No. Yeah. I mean, not with someone who had had it that long uh-huh. um, and not with someone who had refused the treatments. I was like the bad girl. I was like the bad patient uh-huh. <laughs> because I continuously said no to my doctors. And so, you know, in that moment of realizing I'd healed myself, there was jubilation and excitement. And then that quickly turned to anger. And I was like, what the F? Uh, nobody told me any of this information that I had learned because I I took myself on like this deep educational dive into women's health and the cervix and like no one ever talked to me about the cervix no one ever told me what cervical dysplasia actually was no one told me the root causes or how I could support myself and I started thinking about like the millions of women who go through this every year and so that's when I decided to put all this together and develop cervical wellness, which is about um, bringing awareness to this portion of the body that women are told they have to get checked every year. And to educate women about how they can either heal themselves because it is possible, and I know it's possible because I did it, or how they can prevent abnormal PABs. And so, you know, I work one-on-one with women, I teach workshops, I do online, uh, you know, programs, and it's evolving into, like, a women's health, like, empowerment, um, I don't know, like, wave, where women are realizing that we... Even in modern times, we're told that we're, you know, as young girls, we're we're not supposed to masturbate. We're not supposed to touch ourselves because like sticking something inside of ourselves is is dirty or nasty. Um, That we're not supposed to even like look at ourselves in a mirror or or even be aware of this portion of our body, that this portion of our body is... um, you know, our lower half, our pelvic bowl is only to make babies and only you know, like to bring pleasure to men in sex. And obviously, I'm not saying that that's how all people think, but that's how we have been conditioned to believe or what we've been conditioned to believe. And so my work now is transitioning into giving women permission to like bring their consciousness back down to their reproductive system, I call it the generative system because it's not just about reproducing humans. Like this is like the creative center of a woman's body. This is where new ideas and inspiration stem from. And and, and the cervix is like this, I call it a sacred portal. It's like this portal between the inner world of a woman's body, the womb, and the outer world. So the vaginal canal is not considered an internal viscera it's not inside of the woman's body i mean sure it's like inside you know you can't see inside there but it's just basically like a collapsed tube Mm -hmm. and so like there's no like the the only barrier between the um this outside world and the inner world is actually the cervix which sits in between the vaginal canal and the womb 
And, you know, my work is also transitioning to talking to men about this because, you know, when a man penetrates a woman, the head of his penis is literally coming into direct contact with the cervix. And if you look at what a cervix looks like, uh, it looks like the head of a penis. Like if you just like push the cervix out and elongated the vagina, it would look like a penis. And I'm not saying that women have a penis inside them. I'm just saying that the anatomy is very similar. Hmm. And so for men to know that the most exposed part of the cervix is also the most delicate, that there is this transformation zone there and the cells are very uh, sensitive to damage. Um, I, I feel like men who uh, have sex with women need to know this and that the cervix is actually so intelligent is just an intelligent body part and because I, I call it a she although some people might not call it a she i'm going to continue to call it a she um that the she is this epicenter of pleasure that the ultimate orgasm a woman can have is a cervical orgasm and in order for the cervix to be in proper position to orgasm, that's where foreplay comes into, into play. So I'll give you a moment to ask questions a moment after this. Yeah, no, go ahead. Um, so as you and I are sitting here, like when a woman is just sitting here casually having a conversation, like not sexually aroused, um, the cervix sits pretty low in the vaginal canal. So from the opening of the canal to where the cervix is, it's about like two to four inches, maybe two to three inches. So that's not like a lot of space. Right. Yet when a woman um, begins to get turned on and, um, you know, arousal begins to happen, the cervix gets this, gets the idea like, oh, something might be coming in to the vaginal canal. I want to get out of the way so I don't get hit. So I don't get like slammed essentially. And I want to be in proper position so that I can like be this like epicenter of pleasure. So the cervix actually moves up and into the body and elongates the vaginal canal so that whenever the woman is then penetrated, the cervix doesn't get like <laughs> slammed and hurt. Mm -hmm. Um, and that the tip of the penis can just like essentially kiss the cervix and um, uh, stimulation will be more gentle, although it can be rough as well, but it's not as um, forceful or it's not as like blunt. But not if, if not enough time is given for arousal to begin, for the cervix to get that message and then to travel then um, it gets essentially beaten. Mm -hmm. And um, the amount of time that that takes is anywhere from 20 to 45 minutes from like initial, you know, neural messaging to, to um, processes of moving up. So, you know, it's pretty scary how many women I've spoken to I'd say like 95% of women that I've spoken to talk about how um, they've experienced extremely painful sex in their cervix because they weren't properly aroused or they weren't aroused enough and they just endured 
Mm-hmm. And this is a very common story. And so my work is also moving to encouraging women to use their voice in sex and like tell your partner, hold on, I'm not ready. Like, that's okay. It's okay to say that. Mm-hmm. So that's what I'm doing. Awesome. <laughs> um, t- tell us more about cervical orgasms oh. because that's something that I'm sure most men don't know about, but do, do women know about that even? No. No. Okay. No, it's, it's really sad. And I mean, I... I don't want to make it seem like I'm like a professional cervical orgasm or, um, but so there, it is said that there are like three different types of orgasms a a woman can have. Like there's a clitoral stimulation, which is, um, most like a male orgasm. So like you have that build up, build up, build up, like release and then like drop down. Mm Then there's like the the G-spot orgasm, which is like on the front inner area of the um, of the vaginal canal, and that's the um, the the place of stimulation where um, a woman is most likely to squirt. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't like that word. <laughs> uh, ejaculate. There we go. <laughs> um, I just think of the soda squirt. Uh-huh. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's the cervical orgasm and the cervical orgasm is said to be um, to bring a place, bring women to a place of pleasure and opening that can last for hours or even days. And so uh, I, I haven't spoken about this, but the, the cervix is a portal, like it's an actual portal. And when women are connected to it, So like women have to, it's not just all like whatever's penetrating her to bring her to cervical orgasm. Like she has to be in her body with her breath, her awareness down on the cervix and actively like releasing and opening herself. Mm -hmm. So many women approach sex in a very constricted way. Mm -hmm. And that is like the antithesis to cervical orgasm. So the way that a, a, a man can um, support a woman to cervically orgasm is to allow her to be in control. So generally like woman on top is, uh, is, a, is a recommended position because she is able to control like depth and um, what's the word like quickness or rapidity. Rhythm. Rhythm. There we go. <laughs> um or if um, she fully trusts him and is able to open herself up in a way, um, penetration from behind also is is beneficial to this, but it has to be continuous repetitive rhythm. So it can't be like stopping because mm-hmm. he can't control himself and there, and there can't be like a change in pace. It like, has to be like a trance-like mm-hmm rhythm and um motion so that she can drop out of her head into her body and allow the opening to occur and there isn't like this moment of peak and like ah and then dropping mm-hmm. it's like it's just like a continuous like rise up plateau rise up plateau rise up plateau and um from what i have read and just in my own personal life you know there is like no end like there's no like moment Mm -hmm. when it happens it's 
Um, although, although it, it can happen when um, you, that you kind of like go out of body and it's like a psychedelic experience or it's like full body, like visionary, um, like full conduit connected to the heavens and to the earth. It's like, like the female body is really powerful in this way. And, and this is where, you know, um, you know, sex priestesses of, you know, ancient times would use this sort of energy to access, um, information and intelligence and it's really sad that most women don't even know it's possible Mm -hmm. Um, but again there has to be a trust and a willingness to uh, release the gripping release the control and um, trust their partner to um, be there for them in that state because a lot of women have a hard time being seen in you know, writhing moments of pleasure because, Mm. you know, maybe your face looks funny or making funny (laughs) sounds or, you know, whatever. It's like you have to be willing to be fully seen and and he has to be fully willing to witness her in this as well. Mm -hmm. And he's got to be really in tune with her body and and where she is in order Mm -hmm. to like adjust his rhythm to kind of like help her build up to that place right right and it's also on her to communicate so it's incredible like how often women do not speak up Mm -hmm. for themselves and i don't know why i mean i guess i do know why there's like a fear a fear that he'll get upset or mad or frustrated and but if if she wants to achieve the state she has to be willing to use her voice so Mm -hmm. So um, I'm sure it's different for different women, but what's kind of the, the like optimal pressure and rhythm? Is it kind of like a, like I imagine you, that he wants to touch the cervix with some pressure, but obviously not too hard, um, but kind of like a, like you press against it mm. and maybe, maybe like a, like a steady rhythm, like you said, but probably a little bit on the like slower side. Yes, yeah, so to kind of al- really allow speak her to, my, to like deepen into it. Yeah, so it's um, what's coming up is like deep and slow. Yeah. Um, so that's why, like, uh, I, I I've watched other you know videos of other teachers, and they talk about like like remaining deep, and then like like grinding or like not like pulling all the way out and going all the way in but like remaining deep and and kind of churning yeah if, if that makes sense uh-huh. churning <laughs> churning the butter yeah <laughs> um but again it depends like each and she wo- has to also like open to that pleasure right yes. and really kind of like allow it to spread through her body or you know yes and not clench down around that intensity of sensation yes. even if it's pleasurable yes and many women happens. are afraid they, they get afraid of the pleasure it's yeah. so true and you know each woman's vaginal canal is different length each you know man's phallus is a different length you know like it's just gotta work with each other mm-hmm. and that's where communication comes in mm-hmm. um, but this is this is what i know to be true and this is what i've learned i mean i've like um Kim Anami, I don't know if you've ever heard of her. She's Mm -hmm. an amazing woman who talks about sex. And Layla Martin, um, these these two women really go into like how to 
achieve these sort of states. And I just, I am definitely not a a professional practitioner. I just like to bring awareness to the fact that this is possible. possible. Yeah. You know, and, and in, you know, you know, modern pornography and whatnot is just like so focused on the clitoris Mm -hmm. and that's fantastic. The clitoris is like this amazing pleasure center, but there's more, Mm -hmm. there's so much more. Mm -hmm. So does, uh, clitoral stimulation help in a cervical orgasm or not? Mm, That's a good question. Or are they completely separate? I don't know. They are completely separate. Although yeah. you, I, what's coming to me is um, like warming her up to receiving pleasure by way of clitoral, stim, you know, clitoral orgasm. So, you know, women can, even if they orgasm, they can still continue. Right. Um, so that's a good primer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good primer. Um you know, and, and the thing is, is as I've learned about, you know, sexual literacy and, and, and sexual mm, beingness is, um, you know, th- like cervical orgasm doesn't have to happen every time. In fact, it mm-hmm. probably won't happen every time because we have life stresses and life pressure and mm-hmm. you really have to be relaxed and you mm-hmm. have to like, you know, when, when I have questions from men often like, well, how can I support this? You know, with my partner, I say, well, do the dishes, <laughs> you know, like my other friend said that too. Yeah. Like, like make sure there's no pile of laundry on the ground or like keep the space clean. Yeah. Um, you know, make it welcome, Cre- create a relaxed, relaxed environment and facilitate that. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Um, you know, if there's any energetic stag- uh, static between you two, like clear that, mm-hmm. have that conversation because, uh, you know, she won't be able to get into that mindset at all. It's, uh, I, I don't know this for a fact because I don't live in a male body. Um, but from what I have noticed in, in the men that I have been with and, and just in conversations I've had is that men are able to kind of like, um, put like life in a little box and put it away and then like be in sex and like, that's fantastic. Um, but women, like I just recently learned that actually our corpus callosum, which is the place, the part of the brain that connects the two hemispheres is actually thicker in female bodies than in male bodies. And so we, we access the two hemispheres um, more easily. And we live in the two hemispheres of our, of our brain um, more readily. And so, you know, if there's like money problems or if you're thinking about like needing to pay them the mortgage or whatnot, that's going to come into, mm-hmm. into the sexual experience because we can't turn it off. We can't box that away and not think about it. It's like in our sphere. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I love talking about sex. I do too. It's, uh, <laughs> who doesn't? It's, it's magical. <laughs> My friend one time was like, Danelle, you talk about sex, you talk about drugs, rock and roll's next. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When's your band coming in? Right. <laughs> like, oh, I'm not, I'm not much of a musician. But. So tell people where they can 
find you on social media or and you have a program coming up is that right um what, what you were saying earlier like an eight-week program or something yes like although it'll probably be passed and through by the time this comes out but it's an eight-week right. program called the sacred portal and it's uh, eight weeks to unveil and unlock the hit it, the stories hidden within the cervix for healing and well-being so um, one thing I teach is that everything that has ever penetrated a woman, good or bad, like positive experiences, adverse experiences, the cervix remembers. So, you know, our body is very intelligent. And even if our mind wants to forget experiences, our body will always remember. And for many women who have cervical dysplasia, the I have found that there's a direct correlation to unprocessed adverse sexual experiences Mm -hmm. and so this eight-week program is um, guiding women uh, into the darkness that is within their reproductive system to face it to process it to integrate it and then to come out the other side untethered Mm -hmm. like we talked about and renewed which will automatically bring back life force energy to this portion of their body that really needs it Mm. So you can find me at my website, cervicalwellness.com. I'm also on Instagram at cervicalwellness or at Danelle Naraki. I have two Instagrams. And um, Spell that for people too, just so they... My did, name? Yeah, your name. Uh, D-E-N-E-L-L-N-A-W-R-O-C-K-I. Yeah, it's, a, it's a doozy. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I am in the works of launching danelnaraki.com as well which will be um, more about my work with uh, psilocybin mushrooms and my work in um, forest therapy which we Mm -hmm. didn't talk about but we'll talk about that next time okay yeah so i i am a woman of many trades you are (laughs) you are well thank you so much for coming over today and being on the show yeah it was a fascinating conversation and uh, I feel like we've just scratched the surface of uh, several topics but Mm -hmm. so uh, yeah thanks again yeah thank you Finch I had a great time let me know what you guys thought of the episode you can find me on Twitter at Finch Can Fly Instagram and Facebook at Chronicles of a Psychonaut And check out the video stream as well on YouTube. You can find the link in the description. If you like today's episode, I think you'll like next week's episode as well. I talked to my friend Jasmine, who is a Dakini or sexual healer. And we talk about the field of sexual healing and also about relationships and intimacy and some of the blocks that can come up in us as individuals and how we bring them into our relationships. So join me next week.